This show has explicit language and probably has mature themes. Hey, John, would you give us that intro lick? Explanations. I'm Dexter Sorensen. I looked some stuff up on Wikipedia, watched some Vsauce, watched some Isaac Arthur about it, and I'm going to explain it to my friend David Gerondale. I'm going to like this one. I know. David, are you good? I am very good. I just heard the name of my one true Lord and Savior, Isaac Arthur. Isaac Arthur. Yeah. All right. What are we going to learn about today, Dexter (laughs) Sorensen? Thank you. You picked it up. Last time, last time you were kind of a little dry in the it's, beginning. It was a long week. It was getting back from vacation. Yeah, you went on like vacation. that's a we didn't long even talk flight. about that. Yeah, you, I went on went vacation to, to Florida. Went to Florida, it was cool. Saw some, I saw some gators. Got stung by a jellyfish. Saw drank some a bunch family. of salt water. Yeah, <laughs> you're not supposed to drink salt water, dummy. Yeah, it made me sick. It was really fun getting in the ocean. <laughs> the Gulf is like bath water. Actually, I had an amazing time. Yeah. Uh, That's cool. And you deserved it for <laughs> being you. the best co-host in the world. Um, or, I don't know, maybe. There's a lot of good co-hosts. Yeah, and I talked about the <laughs> podcast to my family. Did you? Yeah. My uncle listened to a, an episode or two. He I told like, him to listen to Farts. I think that's right up his alley. Did he say, meh? Um, no, he didn't say meh. He said, oh, okay. He was like, that Dexter Sorensen sounds like a handsome man. (laughs) Damn fucking right. All right. What are we going to learn about? Space debris and Kessler syndrome. Yeah. Okay. So we talked, what did I call it in that other episode? Uh, Kepler syndrome. Kepler syndrome. Yeah. So close, but so fucking far off. Yeah, it was really close. That's why I wanted to look into it because uh, you weren't sure. But yeah, we talked about it in international space law, but we wanted to talk about it in more detail. Cool, yeah. So here we are. It's a big deal. Yeah. I really did used to think, I was like, there's no way space debris could be a big deal at all. Like, there's so much fucking space up in space. Right. Like, like, it's not like humans are running around. And there's like billions running around cascading into each other. And there's like <laughs> billions of us on a smaller surface and only one plane. Um, but my mind has been changed. All right, good. So <laughs> let's get into it. We're going to ask three questions. What is space debris? What are sources of space debris? We're going to do kind of like a, like a, basically a collection or an account of space debris. Okay. And then we're going to finally ask, what is Kessler syndrome? Gotcha. All right. So what is space debris? Initially, space debris referred to natural debris found and like shit found in the solar system, like asteroids, comets, and meteors. Gotcha. Little rocks. Yep. Or big rocks. Yeah. In 1979, NASA started the Orbital Debris Program, and we began using the term space debris to refer to stuff like old satellites, spent rocket stages, and the fragments from their disintegration and collisions. Gotcha. Man-made garbage. Yep. 
Space debris is also known as orbital debris, space junk, and space waste, space trash, space litter, or space garbage. Okay, so yeah. goes by a lot, a lot of different of... shit. But we're gonna just gonna call it space debris. Gotcha. As of July 5th, 2016, the United States Strategic Command tracked a total of 17,852 artificial ar- objects in orbit above Earth. That's a lot of debrises. <laughs> it is. And that includes 17,000. That includes uh, 1,419 operational satellites. Okay, but, I see. But those 17,000 objects are just the objects that are large enough to be tracked. Mm, so we, not those fucking needles. Or, yeah, like we talked about in international space, space law. law. Um, Wikipedia says, as of January ni- 2019, more than 128 million bits of debris smaller than one centimeter, about 900,000 pieces of debris, one to 10 centimeters, and around 34,000 pieces larger than 10 centimeters were estimated to be in orbit around the Earth. Oh, man. Fucking millions of things. Just um, like little nuts and bolts and scraps and yeah. all sorts of stuff. If one of those whizzes through your spacesuit faster than a bullet, I mean... Just a d- paint fleck. Yeah. Yeah, like paint flecks have like like really dented and put craters in windows on ISS. Yeah, because they they're going so fast. You have to think about the relativistic power Speed. that these are. Yeah. yeah, the energy that they're carrying because of their velocity. Mm-hmm. Um, below 1,200 miles above Earth, pieces of debris are denser than meteoroids. And most of them are dust from rocket motors, surface erosion debris, like we said, paint flakes, and frozen coolant from nuclear-powered satellites. For comparison, the International Space Station is at about 190 to the 250-mile range above Earth. Gotcha. Compared Um, to 24,000. 1,200. But under 1,200 miles, the space debris accounts for more mass of objects than the meteorites okay okay sorry i got the figure wrong yeah um over 98 percent of the almost 2,000 tons of debris in low earth orbit as of 2002 was accounted for by 1,500 objects each over 220 pounds oh um and that's kind of like a big deal about space debris is the mass oh sure Rather than the size, especially for what we're going to talk about later with Kessler syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anytime, a lot of people uh, make this mistake. They think that, like, so let's say everything in this room was suddenly zero G. Yeah. Right now, uh, there's a bookcase right behind me. How much easier would it be to move that bookcase? I mean, not a lot. It still has all of the same inertia it did before. Yeah, You're going so to have to shove on it just as hard to get it to move, except that now it's going to float across the room and not instead stop. of tumble over. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. People forget about... Yeah. Like the, the, the inertia that... is a fact of mass, not a fact of gravity. Yeah. And so... Um, the mass of these objects is still going to matter a great deal because yep. it's going to figure into the total amount of energy they're carrying um, well, in the form of kinetic energy when they strike glide. something. Yeah. 
Um, so about 98% of space debris are in low Earth orbit, or LEO. Okay. Uh, and Wikipedia says, a low Earth orbit, LEO, is an Earth-centered orbit with an altitude of 12,000 miles or less, approximately one-third of the radius of Earth, with at least 11 and a half periods per day, which is an orbital period of 128 minutes or less. Most of the man-made objects in outer space are in LEO. So just think about that for a second. Um, in order to travel in, around the Earth. In order to be in low Earth orbit, because what orbit means really is that you're falling towards something so fast that you continually miss it. Yeah. Um, or you're traveling, so, you're falling across, away from something as fast as you're falling towards it. Right, exactly. You're you're moving past it at the same rate you fall towards it. Yeah. So that you continually loop around it. Yeah. So now everything in low Earth orbit has to move at, at least that speed in order to maintain that orbit, and it can't move much faster, otherwise its orbit will change. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean they're on the same exact orbital trajectory. So objects relative to one another may be moving at thousands of kilometers different to one another. Yeah. Meaning that they are moving like speeding bullets. I have a figure for this. The average orbital velocity needed to maintain a stable low Earth orbit is about 7.8 kilometers a second or about 17,000 miles per hour. But it's lower at higher orbital altitudes. Sure, because you have further to fall. You don't have to travel as fast. Yeah. Um, And then the density of objects in LEO and the fact that they have to orbit up to 15 times a day means that the objects actually frequently pass near each other. Huh. Um, Because there's just like so much shit and they're moving so fast. Yeah. And you think about it, the closer you are to Earth, the less volume of space there is. Yeah. And another thing to keep in mind is that objects in LEO are still in the thermosphere or exosphere, and so they do experience slowing due to atmospheric drag. Thank goodness for yeah. that, though. Yeah, that means actually. they won't be there forever. Um, yeah, no. Until they like go up into medium Earth orbit or geosynchronous orbit. Well, they would have to be boosted up there. Yeah, yeah. They would have to initially be there or be put there yeah i'm saying that the objects in low earth orbit because of the drag won't be there forever but things but things in the higher part of low earth orbit like can still be there for decades and decades oh yes certainly maybe Um, a century or more yeah um the needles dude so yeah (laughs) like we were talking about if they want to be there like stay in low earth orbit they have to be periodically reboosted to keep a stable orbit or replacement satellites have to be launched to replace the old ones as they re-enter. Like the ISS needs to be rebooted. Reboosted? <laughs> yeah. A few times a year to stay in orbit. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It has to actually fire thrusters Yeah. in order to... Uh, you can actually watch it on NASA because it drops quite a bit before it boosts back up yeah um and that's so, why it's between 190 and 250 i assume yeah yeah it doesn't stay at a stable um altitude above earth yeah so let's talk about sources of space debris the catalog is what okay. i'm calling this section um start with a wikipedia quote In 1958 the united states launched vanguard one into a medium earth orbit 
and as of October 2009, it and the upper stage of its launch rocket are the oldest surviving man-made space objects still in orbit. Wow. Yeah, since 1958. Yeah, jeez, oh, Pete. That's, so it's like 51 years old? No, I'm long, sorry. Much longer, like set, 61. Yeah. Math. <laughs> Math. Um, in a list of known launches until July 20, 2009, the Union of Concerned Scientists listed 902 operational satellites from a known population of 19,000 large objects and about 30,000 objects launched. So a lot of them have re-entered. And a real interesting group or category of space debris is equipment lost by astronauts. Oh, during EVA. Yeah. Or spacewalks. Yeah. EVA Um, meaning uh, extravehicular activity. Yeah. Anything that happens outside of the um, environmental controlled cabins. Inside, yeah. Yeah. Like inside the ISS or like any other space station. Yeah, inside. Anything that happens outside of pressurized environments. Yep. So a glove was lost by astronaut Ed White on the first American spacewalk. How do you lose a glove? How Why do you, do you have extra gloves glove? around? What? What? Do yeah. You, like, and a camera was. He's lo- like, "Whoa, there was a glove in the <laughs> airlock, fellas! Shot out into space when I blew the airlock before it fully depressurized. How the hell does that happen? I don't, I don't know. The extra glove I had." Taped to my back in case my first gloves fell off. I thought I that thought it untaped, guy, th- fellas. I thought if I saw an alien out here, I'd challenge him to a duel. <laughs> <laughs> like, where's the? I really want to know where the hell this extra glove came from. <laughs> Why do you have extra gloves out in space? It's not like you can take yours off and change them out for a new one. No shit. And then a camera was lost by Michael Collins near Gemini Ten. That one um, makes a lot more sense. That one makes a lot more sense. And then a thermal blanket was lost during the first space shuttle mission to the ISS. What? A thermal blanket was lost. Were they having a fucking space picnic? <laughs> yeah. They just wanted to like catch some sun. Oh, it's floating away, fellas! The spa- <laughs> space yogi got it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, boo-boo. <laughs> we got a space blanket. <laughs> <laughs> During uh, MIR's 15-year life, or MIR's? MIR, yeah. Yeah, during MIR's 15-year life, um, it was a space station operated by the Soviet Union and then later by Russia. They lost a wrench and a toothbrush. That's not too bad over yeah. 15 years. But also, toothbrush. like, well, toothbrush, why were they bringing the toothbrush out the, there? Like, in the airlock. Or like, where, how, yeah, well, what I, should I bring? Oh, you know what? I bet it was for cleaning stuff on the outside. Oh, I you bet know it was what? just cleaning up dust and stuff like that. I think you're right. Because the Russians were like economical about stuff yeah. like that. Why invent a new tool for something when you just you just you use a toothbrush? A toothbrush. There's that yeah. famous but probably apocryphal story about like NASA creating the gravity pen so that they could like have astronaut like so. Oh uh, ast- yeah, you know, and they Russians spent years like R and D. We have pencil. You have pencil. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. Yeah. The, the toothbrush. That's funny. The Russians also the Russians discovered kind of first. Like to help us out too, uh, that 
space stations get really dirty and stinky really fast. Yeah. Um, There's like something described as like a space smell. Yeah. Which is weird. Oh, that's partly because of... Like um, deionization. Yeah, exactly. Like as solar wind and stuff hits the hull, like basically the oxygen that's in the metal, the outgasses from the metal, mm-hmm. um, is becoming... It's like becoming ozone. Yeah. It's just weird. Um, and ozone has a very particular well, smell, apparently. We just got rid of one of our short topics. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sunita Williams of STS-116, which was a space shuttle mission to the ISS from December 10th to the 22nd of 2006. They lost another camera during an EVA. Okay. And then during STS-120, October 23rd to November 7th, 2007, they had an EVA to reinforce this torn solar panel, and they lost a pl- pair of pliers. Don't you feel like... Uh, so, like, when you were a kid and you, like, lost a cherished toy, you felt, like, this pang of regret, even though you knew yeah. it wasn't alive. Like, you were so attached to it, and now you felt like it might be lonely or something. If I lost a tool as an astronaut on an EVA, I think, like, for a small, illogical second, there would be, like, this pang of, like, regret oh, yeah. for, like, the loneliness of that object from now on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seriously. Well, and then in... Uh, and it's irretrievability. It's ir- Yeah. Well, especially now with, like, no drones or anything able to go get it. Yeah. Like, it's just there. It might actually kill something later. Yeah, it might like, just... <laughs> it might crash through another astronaut later. <laughs> yeah. Um, during STS-126, from November 16th to November 23rd in 2008, Heidi Marie Stefan Piper, sorry, I fucked up your name. Sorry, Ms. Stefashtian Piper. Yeah, uh, they lost a briefcase-sized tool bag. Oh, man, that's a fuck-up. Yeah, that's a lot of shit in there. That, oh, my God. Can you, like, how much, how much... Money did that cost to get into orbit into in the orbit. first place? Yeah, seriously. Like every kilogram counts on it. Like they're exactly so like literally WD forty was invented. It stands for water displacement version forty. Yeah, version forty. Um, and it was invented because they didn't want to paint the rockets because of the extra weight the paint would add. Well, and then also... Um, so they couldn't let them rust, right? Because, yeah. But they didn't want to paint them with rust-oleum. Yeah. So they used WD-40. Yeah. Because it's a water-based lubricant, so it displaces water without adding a lot of weight. Yeah. Like grease and oil and stuff. Mm, it's great. WD-40, I found, is actually really good for mold. Like, my car was really moldy when it was leaking, like like, six years ago. I just sprayed it with a bunch of WD-40, and it was like a fucking eraser. Oh, you just wiped the mold right off, huh? Yeah. Nice. Uh Uh-huh. A bunch of debris is caused by exploding launch boosters. Oh, sure. Yeah. The couplers, like Mm. the the couplers usually explode outward in a pretty uncontrolled... Yeah, but usually usually, um, those in those controlled cases, they're in low enough orbit... Or, like, controlled in a way that they'll re-enter. Right. Um, Because if it's the second stage, it's going to be so low that the boosters are just going to fall right back to Earth. Yeah. 
But if uh, it's a third stage. Yeah. Um, but like, for example, on March 11th, 2000, a Chinese long march for CBERS one upper stage exploded in orbit, creating a debris cloud. Ugh. And then eight breakups occurred in 2006, the most since 1993. Ugh. And also, the, not that long ago. Um, the Chinese thing? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're going to talk okay, about Okay, we'll later. get to that. Yeah. Um, on February 19th, 2007, a Russian booster stage exploded in orbit over South Australia, and the explosion was captured on film by astronomers. But Wikipedia says, due to the orbital path, the debris cloud has been difficult to measure by radar. But then the next thing they said is by the 21st of that same month, so like three days later, over a thousand fragments were identified. Oh, geez. Yeah. And then there's the debris caused by weapons. Um, yep. Like the deliberate destruction of satellites using anti-satellite weapons. Which is usually a display of force. Yeah. Like a, a display of what you're capable of. Hostility. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, it's usually like, hey, this is what I'm capable of, just so you know. Yeah. And most recently, like you were just about to talk about, China was heavily condemned for taking out one of their own satellites. And it's called the largest single space debris incident in history. They created over 2,300 pieces, which are golf ball size or larger, over 35,000, almost a half inch or larger, and 1 million pieces a tenth of that size or larger. It was basically a massive fuck you to the international space community. community. Yeah. And we talked, you started to talk about it in international space, space law. law, but I had no fucking idea about it. So I think we skirted past it. Yeah, it's it was a big deal. Um, like you said, they faced widespread unanimous condemnation. condemnation. Yeah, um, because it, this is in an era well where the dangers are well known, mm. and you know we intend to move industry up there. Like the long term vision for the next century is to be moving all of our heavy industry off of Earth and into orbit. We can't afford like right now. Yeah. It might not be that big of a deal when we have like you know, dozens of people up there. Yeah. But when we have hundreds and thousands of people up there on a daily basis who live up there, who work up there, you know, or maybe who commute up there, that's a different story. Then incidents become much more common. Yeah. You know, one thing that's crazy to think about is if you were born after 1999, every single day of your life, there have been humans in space. Oh, that is weird. Yeah. Without a break. That's crazy, right? Like that. That's just weird to think about. If you were born, if you were born ten years, yeah. If you were born ten, 10 years, years after, after me, we were born, yep. Yeah, me and Dexter. If you were born ten years after Dexter and I, then and John, all born in the same year, then eighties, uh, <laughs> just barely. Yeah. Um. Then yeah, every single day you've been alive, humans have been in space. I feel like that's. To me, I would feel like a special generation. I would feel like, oh, absolutely. wow, yeah. this is really the first generation of the future. Almost. Continuous space. Continuous, like every Man day you've space. been alive, there have been humans up there. Um, so yeah, like we were just talking about the Chinese anti-satellite test on their own satellite where they created millions of pieces of debris. Yeah, and it was basically like a look what we can do Yeah, and a massive fuck you to international law. The target satellite decorum. Yeah. 
The target satellite orbited between 530 miles and 548 miles, and that's the portion of near-Earth space most densely populated with satellites. Huh. So it was a big fuck you and yeah. like kind of like a let's see what happens almost. Yeah. You know what? It seems like an experiment. More than anything, it's like yeah. a long-term experiment into what what are viable strategies for blocking off spy access or communications access yeah. from our enemies. That's what it seems well, like to since, me. Since atmospheric drag is so low at that altitude, the debris is slow to return to Earth. So, like, in June 2007, NASA's Terra Environmental Spacecraft had to maneuver to avoid impact from the debris. Jesus. Yeah. And then uh, another crazy thing that happened is the first and only major satellite collision. That happened on February 10th, 2009. The deactivated 2,090-pound Cosmos 2251 and the operational... 1,230 LB Iridium-33 collided 500 miles above northern Siberia. So they were huge satellites that collided. Yeah, massive. Yeah, you're talking really, really big satellites, yeah. not CubeSats. These, these are fucking one of huge them, old things. One of them had been deactivated. It wasn't even being used. No, yeah. The relative speed of impact was about... 7.3 miles per second, or about 26,170 miles per hour. So, yeah, you're, you're like, that's those are speeds are unimaginable. Unimaginable. And those it's are like, only, the, those are the types of speeds that you can only have. like two bullets up in flying, space. Two fucking 2,000 pound bullets flying at each other. Yeah, except a bullet travels at a fraction that speed. Yeah. Still. And so you're talking about, like, if two bullets collide, they deform radically. But what you're talking about happening is essentially, it's almost like a vaporization of the material. Yeah. Um, it, uh, yeah, it sent two huge clouds of debris traveling in the directions the satellites were heading. It would be like two shotguns were fired in opposing directions from the same point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, NASA estimated that the collision created around 1,000 pieces of debris larger than four inches. And by July 2011, the U.S. Space Surveillance Network had cataloged over 2,000 large debris fragments. NASA initially said that the risk to the ISS was relatively low, as the ISS orbits 270 miles below the collision course. But they did have to perform an avoidance maneuver due to collision debris in March 2011. Hmm. And then... Wikipedia describes a second incident. Quote, A small piece of Cosmos 2251 satellite debris safely passed by the International Space Station on March 24, 2012, at a distance of approximately 130 yards. Whoa! <laughs> yeah. Holy shit, right? Holy that's oh, fucking close. In in like yeah, in space, in space terms, that's like it passed through your clothes without hitting your body. Yeah. As a precaution, the six crew members on board the orbiting complex took refuge inside the two docked Soyuz rendezvous spacecraft until the debris had passed. And I think they've had to do that about three or four times. That would be scary. Right? You're like because what happens in those cases, usually they can just like maneuver a little bit to get out of the way. 
But like in some cases, they just don't see the shit until it's like Too about close. there. Yeah, and so they can't do shit about it. Oh yeah, you just have can't... to. You just have to basically get in the ejector pads. Yeah, like because that's what the Soyuz stuff is. Is basically just ways like if it's of all them gonna evacuating. Be fucked, yeah, yeah. It's it's spaceships essentially or modules with rockets attached with boosters attached. Yeah. Uh rockets rather, not boosters. Um that allow them to function as escape pods. Yeah. They can come back to Earth if they need to. All right. So let's talk about Kessler syndrome. We t- we alluded to it. We talked about it in international. Yeah, I mistakenly called it Kepler syndrome quite a few times. <laughs> well, Kepler, I actually get that because Kepler is also a, a well known and it's well a well known, known space fi- space figure. Yeah, and Kessler is less well known, but yeah, also space figure and sound very similar. S- sound very similar. All right, so the Kessler syndrome was proposed by NASA scientist Donald J. Kessler in 1978. It's a scenario where the density of objects in low Earth orbit is high enough that collisions between objects could cause a cascade in which each collision generates space debris that increases the likelihood of further collisions. Yeah, so, basically it's a runaway effect. It's a runaway effect where... That the real... The implications of are that space flight outside of our planet's atmosphere... or Like, flight outside of our planet's atmosphere becomes impossibly risky for decades and possibly centuries. Yep. Like it sets back the clock on everything. Well, and if you think about like what <laughs> we actually use that area of space for, it sets back humanity. Communications, weather monitoring, um, pretty much everything. Like spy, like you know, uh, yeah, internet, like fucking navigation. Yeah, navigation planes. hugely. Um, tons of stuff like, uh, and then during the 1980s, the U S air force conducted an experiment, uh, to figure out what would happen if debris collided with space satellites or other debris. And the study demonstrated that the process differed from micrometeorial collisions where large chunks of debris would be created, which would become collision threats. And then in 1991, Kessler published another paper called Collision Cascading, the Limits of Population Growth in Low Earth Orbit, with the best data then available. Citing the Air Force's conclusions about the creation of debris, he wrote that even though almost all debris objects like paint flecks were lightweight, most of its mass was in debris about 2.2 pounds or heavier. Okay. So that's what we're talking about. Like, the mass is the important part. Yep. Objects of this size could destroy a spacecraft on impact, creating more debris in the critical mass area. According to the National Academy of Sciences, a one kilogram object impacting at 10 kilometers a second, for example, is probably capable of catastrophically breaking up a thousand kilogram spacecraft if it strikes a high density element in the spacecraft. In such a breakup, numerous fragments larger than one kilogram would be created. Right. And so, like, that's the idea is that it essentially reproduces as it goes and exponentially increases the likelihood of another impact. And each successive impact exponentially increases the chance of another one. Yeah. Until it gets to the point where it's too risky to, to put 
you know, anything. you just don't put human life, human life at risk anymore. And you don't risk sending more objects up to, to prolong the, the issue. Effect. Kessler divided the problem into three parts. One, with a low enough density, the addition of debris through impacts is slower than their decay rate, and the problem is not significant. Two, beyond that is a critical density where additional debris leads to additional collisions. And then three, at densities beyond this critical mass, production exceeds decay, which leads to a cascading chain reaction, reducing the orbiting population to small objects, several centimeters in size. So everything up there is... Is pulverized. Pulverized to small objects. Yep. And it increases the hazard of space activity. This chain reaction for cascading effects is known as Kessler syndrome. Gotcha. Um, in an early 2009 historical overview, Kessler summed up the situation. This is kind of a long quote. Aggressive space activities, in my opinion, like the Chinese anti-satellite oh, sure. thing, without adequate safeguards could significantly shorten the time between collisions and produce an intolerable hazard to future spacecraft. Some of the most environmentally dangerous activities in space include large constellations, such as those initially proposed by Strategic Defense Initiative in the mid-1980s. They call, like, because satellites in low Earth orbit can't see everything on Earth, they have to have a network of satellites oh, to sure. make something like, they call those constellations. Gotcha. Starlink might be a constellation. Yeah, then. the SpaceX thing. Yeah. Yeah, that is. That's a large group of constellations. Large structures such as those considered in the late 1970s for building solar power stations in Earth orbit and anti-satellite warfare systems tested by the USSR, the US, and China over the past 30 years. Such aggressive tactics and activities could set up a situation where a single satellite failure could lead to cascading failures of many satellites in a period much shorter than 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what the Chinese were risking when they did that. And according to Kessler, a cascade would not be obvious until it was well advanced. Oh, sure. Yeah. You're not going to know. Like, yeah, there's, you're not going to have. Yeah. We still don't know what the full implications of what China's actions are. No. Many people think that we're in a space past critical density already. Ugh. Like a 2006 NASA model suggested that if no new launches took place, the environment would retain the then-known population until about 2055, when it would actually increase on its own. What? Yeah. If we didn't launch anything new up there, it would retain its population. It's about its population until 2055. And then it would increase because of... Because of the cascade effect. Jeez, Richard Crowther of Britain's Defense Evaluation and Research Agency said in 2002 that he believed the cascade would begin in about 2015. And then the National Academy of Sciences noted widespread agreement that two bands of LEO space around 620 miles and 930 miles were already past critical density. Jeez. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> I just keep keep going. There's more. Um, University of Southampton researcher Hugh Lewis has predicted that the threat from space debris would rise 50% in the next decade and quadruple in the next 50 years. And as of 2009, more than 13,000 close calls were tracked weekly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. It's fucking nuts because everything is going so fucking fast up there. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. There's no... If something hits you, that's it. That's it. There's not a lot you can... Fucking do you about can't prepare it. for it. You can't do. And most yeah. of the stuff they track is softball size or larger. Jeez. Um. So yeah, this is where we get to what can be done about it. All right. Cool. A um, little bit of hope. <laughs> a little bit of hope. Designers of new satellites and spacecraft are now regularly required to prove they can be disposed of at the end of their life. Either they have to show that it'll be a con- they'll have a controlled reentry. Or that it will be propelled into a graveyard orbit, which is well above geosynchronous orbit. And geosynchronous orbit is like about 2000, uh, 22,000 miles up. And that's a uh, geosynchronous orbit is one that just like basically appears stationary over a single part of the Earth. Yeah, it takes it you, it, it takes, takes you 24 a, hours to orbit. And so you stay stationary relative to a point above the Earth. ground. Yeah. Yeah. That's about 22,000 miles up. Um, Wikipedia says, in order to obtain a license to provide telecommunication services in the United States, the Federal Communications Commission, FCC, requires all geostationary satellites launched after March 18, 2002, to commit to moving to a graveyard orbit at the end of their operational life. So above geosynchronous orbit. I see. And the U.S. government regulations similarly require a plan to dispose of satellites at the end of their mission, either through atmospheric reentry movement or movement to graveyard orbit or direct retrieval. Okay. Um, so, yeah, like, but a lot of countries don't have those requirements. True. Um, this is where we get to Isaac Arthur. Okay. The motherfucking awesome futurist. Yes. And every time we talk about Isaac Arthur, we got to plead to you to go just watch some videos. Oh, yeah. Like, whatever you're into, whether it's uh, rockets or aliens or the far future, like, magical technologies, Isaac Arthur brings realism, um, wit, and uh, a total lack of pretension to any topic you can imagine when it comes to science fiction or futurism. Yeah. So, um... He says that one of the preferred ways to take care of space debris is to use what's called a laser broom. Yeah. Um, Basically, it's a big laser that would be used to heat one side of the object. Yep. Essentially propelling it. Yeah, because what it would do is it would cause cause a bit of ablation or a little bit of, um, like, just, which would... Some of the material will evaporate away. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Some of the material would evaporate away, which and that evaporation would, would cause, cause a little thrust. bit of thrust. Tiny amount of thrust. And that tiny amount of thrust could cause the object to go into a decaying orbit. Yep. And so, like, they would just go into reentry, burn up the, in the atmosphere. Yeah, whatever. essentially you shine a really bright, bright flashlight at a, at a group of debris, and it pushes them down into reentry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
He says that ultimately you would want to stop Kessler syndrome from happening in the first place by using techniques like requiring objects to have a plan to get the fuck out of LEO. Right. Or using a laser broom or having little drones that collect everything that gets away from a ship. Yeah, we've there are plans right now on the drawing board for magnets, really powerful magnets to collect up debris, Ooh, smaller yeah. stuff. And um, now we've actually invented and implemented um, NASA. NASA used this for a decayed satellite um, or a deactivated satellite, uh, a net. Really? Like a harp. Uh, yeah, and also, actually, no, sorry, they used a harpoon. That's right, they used a harpoon. Oh, that's cooler. So, like, we've used harpoons, Nets are cool, magnetic but harpoons, harpoons traditional harpoons, nets. Those are all things that are being considered for larger mass yeah, objects. Because, I mean, if we want to continue to have modernity, we're going to have to fucking figure it out. We have to clean that stuff up. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, we can't, we can't. I'm a proponent for moving heavy industry up there so that we can pollute space with stuff that doesn't matter up there like radiation or harmful gases um stuff like that byproducts but like nuts and bolts you can't pollute space no. with that kind of stuff it's <laughs> you gotta uh, be able it's to get too it. harmful yeah um in that video one of the most interesting ways that he talked about it though is like after the cascade has happened um he says <laughs> If you, like, absolutely have to get stuff through the impassable zone, he suggests that you could send up a huge nuke and clear a space right before a ship flies through. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's like a Hail Mary. Yeah, that is a Hail Mary. Like, But, just, I mean, like, that's once... He's talking about, he's like... He's about talking about if it's worst case scenario. fucked. Yep. Like, you just got to get up there. Yeah. But yeah, that's... So you'd have to reestablish things. You'd want to clean it up. You wouldn't want it for it to no. to naturally live. And out you wouldn't want to keep just sending nukes up there all the time. No. But yeah, that's pretty much what I got about space debris and Kessler syndrome. You got anything else on your mind? Um. No, not really. I kind of want to retire to live up in space, though. So like, we need to keep that shit clean. Fuck that! I ain't ever going to space. I'm scared of space. Really? For good fucking reason. Yeah. If I, I have a, know this about you. If I have a one in ten thousand chance of dying, or one in fucking forty thousand chance of dying, I ain't gonna fucking do it. Oh well, I guess you'll never get in your car again. Oh, I'm a good driver, and I'm good at. It's not about you. But also, so I, yeah, but space drivers. space is definitely not about me. Like, I'm not gonna be able to avoid anything in space. Also, space is just not where humans are meant to be. I strongly disagree. <laughs> Outside of Africa isn't where humans are meant to be. Yeah, but... But you and I are supremely adapted to live outside of Africa. All right, but, like, basically every single condition for being alive in space is based on the engineering that you had to do in order to do it. Yeah. Like, you can't breathe up there. You can't survive the radiation up there. Um... All that shit. Nuh-uh. I ain't, no, I ain't living in space at all. I ain't even into going to space. Space is cool. I'll look at the fucking pictures. You live inside buildings without a fear of them collapsing. Yeah, I do. I don't see what the difference is. Well, if the building does collapse, there's a good chance that I might just be able to crawl my way out of it. And I don't still, know if I'd still be able to chance. fucking breathe. I can at least breathe while the rubble is collapsing on me. 
Like Cersei and Jamie, they died way too fucking easy. That was a really unsatisfying death. And that was one of my least favorite parts about that last season. Sorry for spoilers, you guys. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I think that's all I got. Yeah, that's all I got. All right. That's it for this episode. Dexplanations is recorded at Rabbit Pen Studios in Eugene, Oregon. It's produced, edited, and provide them sweet licks by Jonathan Cunningham. Art and logo by Monet Moran. Social media management by Alicia Fentress. And my trusty co-host is David Gerondale. That's me. That's you. Hey, buddy. I want to thank people who have left our most recent reviews on iTunes. Both of them are podcasters themselves. PDS Kirk is one of the hosts of the podcast discussion show. And Legendary Lasses is of the podcast with the same name. Check out their podcast for great recommendations and banter about podcasts or for discussion about some of the coolest women in history. If you too want to support the show, leave a review on iTunes, tell a friend to listen to your favorite episode, or go to patreon.com slash Dexplanations. All of these things really help a lot as we're trying to get more exposure for the show, and we really, 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 really appreciate you for doing that. Likely, we got a bunch of things wrong. If you want to tell me about it or just want to bullshit, hit me up at explanationspodcast at gmail.com. Tweet me at Dexplanations or comment on the Instagram. I'll bring it up in a later episode or do a new episode about it. Oh, and as for you, the only cascading effects you have on me are trust and friendship. Bye now. But everybody, Brady. Yeah, I stole one of your beers, asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Fine.